Welcome to Scavenger's Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney Plus or a weird EU novelization you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 172, and it's 9th of January 2022. So, yeah, it's obviously been a little while since we last recorded. We've had Christmas, the new year in between. Um, so, yeah, how were your holidays, Kirsty? It was really nice. Um, I didn't get to see everyone I was hoping to see, for mm. probably obvious reasons to everyone. Um, yeah. But yeah, I had a really good time. Um, very relaxing. Um, my kid's at the age where he gets excited about Christmas now, which was really cute. So that was a lot of fun. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's lovely. It must make all the difference having a little kid around. It does, because you kind of forget that that's kind of what Christmas is focused on for a lot of people like when you're you know yeah. you're grown up and everyone in your family's grown up and then suddenly there's another kid it's like oh right yeah <laughs> Christmas yeah. is for them so yeah that no was really it's just nice. that pure unfiltered excitement <laughs> it's really magical yeah how about yours uh yeah it was really nice thank you um I was really lucky so I got to spend it with like all the family that I was hoping to see which was really amazing especially because I knew a lot of people didn't have that privilege this year again obvious reasons um but yeah it was awesome i really enjoyed it i had a great time at home with the parents and other relatives um and yeah another really nice aspect of it was because i was home visiting family i got to watch the first episode of the book of boba fett with my dad which is always really special because he's the person who introduced me to star wars Mm. so yeah when i can experience a new star wars thing with him it's really really nice and i'll try and talk a bit more about that particular experience with the show later on when we get to the main discussion of it yeah i was very happy to hear that he'd enjoyed it yeah no he was so sweet about it It, i think it's honestly the most he's enjoyed a star wars thing in a long long time i think he enjoyed that more than he enjoyed any of the sequel trilogy films okay and i cannot relate (laughs) (laughs) and to be clear i did really like boba fett i really enjoyed it but you know obviously the whole reason this podcast exists is because we went a bit gaga for the sequel trilogy so yeah it would be like a betrayal of my original story, so to speak, <laughs> if I were to say otherwise. Um, but yeah, anyway, you may have noticed some changes in the format of the introduction to this podcast. Um, and yeah, I think you were saying, Kirsty, weren't you, that we're kind of like overdue a bit of a revamp because the podcast has shifted a bit, hasn't it, in terms of what we talk about? Yeah, well, I mean, we kind of evolved it a little bit once the sequel trilogy was over. But then mm-hmm. even since then, it's not... I realised we weren't just talking about the future of Star Wars. We'd ended up going quite far into the past as well of like novelizations and dipping into the EU a bit and like watching the Ewok movies and stuff. <laughs> so it's a real mixed bag at this point. It's just kind of whatever catches our eye and attention at the moment in time, which is exactly. hopefully fine for people. Yeah, no, people do seem to be enjoying the latest run of episodes with all their weirdness and unpredictability. So hopefully we are offering something entertaining and a bit different by just doing whatever the hell we want to. (laughs) So yeah, we hope you enjoyed the ride, guys. Um, But yeah, basically, as part of the revamp, we wanted to set aside a bit of time at the beginning of each episode to highlight something that we've seen or read recently that we really enjoyed. We wanted to bring to people's attention. Um, so yeah, Kirsty, would you like to do the honours and talk about something that you'd like to put on people's radar? Yeah, it was quite hard to pick some things because I feel like I've read and watched a lot recently that might appeal to our listeners, but yeah. I'll try to be specific. 
Um, I just finished this book called Lady from the Black Lagoon by Mallory O'Meara, um, who works in horror movies. And this was her first book. And it's about Millicent Patrick, who was the designer of the creature from the Black Lagoon. And um, I really recommend it to people if they're fans of that movie or if you're interested in, you know, women in the film industry, um, women in horror specifically, I guess. Um, And Millicent had a really interesting life, um, but she was also kind of erased from film history, which is pretty tragic because she was amazing. Um, Her boss, who was kind of like head of makeup and um, stuff at Universal at the time for that picture basically got really jealous of the attention that she was getting for her achievement with that creature design because it's iconic right yeah um and he took credit for it and basically erased her from the film's history um until very recently and um mallory writing this book is a a huge part of that uncovering so i was really just as i was reading it i was like really grateful to her for having done all this work yeah um i will say that if people go into it don't expect like a standard biography because the whole thing, the kind of um, impetus behind her writing it is the realisation that there's very little information out there about Millicent Patrick. So it's kind of also the memoir of the way that she was researching her and uncovering this information. Um, and Mallory puts a lot of herself and her own experiences into the book as well. Um, so it's not just about Millicent herself, but um, definitely worth a read if you're a fan of that movie. And if you're not give the movie a try as well <laughs> i highly recommend creature from the black lagoon it's it's one of my favorite horror movies so yeah this is like a proper monster love story isn't it yeah oh and of course like if you if you like the shape of water that's obviously influenced by it as well and that's maybe something that people are more likely to have seen in recent years um so yeah the two definitely go in hand they make a great double bill for obvious reasons yeah, no, that's awesome. That does sound really interesting. And I think it's really good that you highlighted the fact that it's not a traditional biography in terms of just being like an account of this woman's life, um, but also about the life of the person who wrote the book, kind of, and the story of trying to research that person. Um, because I think that sounds really fascinating. But I think if someone were to go into the book expecting a straight biography, they could easily be quite disappointed. So, yeah, I think it's good to have that proviso. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the, like part of the story that's kind of been built up around Millicent is the fact that this happened to her because she was a young woman in in horror. So, yeah. like, the story of her erasure is a part of her story now. Um, but it's really great that she's kind of being celebrated at this point. So, yeah, yeah I recommend that one. Uh, I also watched a really great movie last night called Babyface. Um, it's from 1933 and stars Barbara Stanwyck, who is just amazing like one of my favorite all-time hollywood actors she's so Um, good she's so good if you haven't seen well if you haven't seen any of her movies i would start with double indemnity but um yeah that's like a classic noir but this one is really great for different reasons um it's one of the movies that actually inspired the Hayes code enforcement so that should give you some idea of like how scandalous it was at the time it deals with a lot of like social taboos her character is just wild um, and just a, an amazing performance. Um, I watched that on Amazon Prime and it was like $2 to rent it. So if you have access to that in the US, I don't know about the UK or anywhere else. Sorry, yeah. but um, should should be easy to find at this point. But I did, I Googled it afterwards and I was reading the New York Times article, I think from like 2005. And it was like 
the uncensored version was found relatively recently, like just in the last couple of decades. So it feels like a privilege to be able to watch it now. Um, because, yeah, obviously the Hayes Code, anyone knows anything about Hollywood history that changed the course of, of cinema for a good few decades. So, Yeah, no, I hadn't heard of that film, but I do love Barbara Stanwyck. I saw her in Stella Dallas um, last year, and that's an amazing film. I, you know, like I don't, haven't seen many films from the 30s specifically, and, you know, watching that film and her performance in it really made me realise what's possible, you know, like in films of that era. Because, you know, in your head, you can sometimes think old movies are just all like fusty and a bit dry and unexciting, you know, but the drama in that film is so compelling. And yeah, it sounds like this one's also really gripping. So, yeah, check out old movies, guys. They can be really <laughs> awesome, too. <laughs> um, yeah, was there anything else? Yeah, I was just I I didn't know whether to like recommend these because people have probably seen them, mm -hmm. but I just decided to rewatch them. You know when it's the holiday season and you just kind of feel like watching something familiar. Yeah, and they're like they're like tangentially holiday movies if you squint. <laughs> um, I watched the Tim Burton Batman's, um, so that's like yeah Batman and Batman Returns. I think that's what it's called. I get them mixed up because I'm now like halfway through Batman Forever, which is the Val Kilmer one, but um can't recommend that yet because i haven't rewatched it sure but, um yeah i just the tim burton ones i am not like a, an expert on comic book movies so take what i have to say with a grain of salt but for me these movies are like the platonic ideal of like comic book superhero <laughs> movies yes because there's so much personality they're sexy and they're weird and creepy and the villain performances from jack nicholson and danny devito were just iconic like they're so good yeah, um, Daddy DeVito as the Penguin is honestly just like <laughs> so creepy and so hilarious. Uh, yeah, that has just like stuck with me since childhood. So it was kind of fun to revisit those. Yeah, gosh, I haven't seen those films in such a long time, but I would love to revisit them. I'm gonna have to see where you can find them over here because see, I'm not sure where I'd watch them. But yeah, I remember having really vivid memories of certain scenes. And stuff like I think a baby gets sent for a sewer, don't they? And yeah, that, that's the penguin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> baby is the penguin. Of course, he is. <laughs> yeah, his parents are scared of him. Um, <laughs> they're on HBO Max in the US, but I think they might be about to leave at the end of the month. I think that's what, how they caught my eye. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure where to find them over there. I should probably, maybe if we're going to start recommending things regularly, we should like look up where people can watch them in different parts of the world. Or yeah. <laughs> Just so that we can point them to a certain place. Yeah, I think that's very noble if we can try to do that. Sometimes, <laughs> though, as my cases will show, that won't always be possible. Yeah, it can be difficult and they do move around. So if someone's listening to it like a few weeks later, it might not be in the place where we say it is and stuff like that. So. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the things I hate about streaming. Sometimes you can't beat a good old disc <laughs> and you're holding it in your hands and it's yours forever. Um, but I know that's a very minority position. It's just not realistic for every movie you want to watch, right? Oh, God, like, no. Physical media no, is no. great, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, only it's... certain films, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, those are all really great picks and obviously a hell of a lot of diversity in those selections as well, Kirsty. So um, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'll quickly go through mine. Um, so I've... Well, I'm always watching a lot of films. I was about to say, I've seen a bunch of films. Like, it was a surprising <laughs> thing, but I'm always watching lots of films. So it's like, shock, not. 
Um, but yeah, I'll just talk about a few things that really struck me recently. Um, so yeah, the first thing I'd like to put on people's radar, because I feel it might be of interest to the people who listen to this podcast, at least the people of a Raylo persuasion, if you will. Um, thank you for sticking around. I know we don't like do like detailed Raylo deep dives as much anymore, so <laughs> thank you for still listening to us. Um, but yeah, the film I saw two days ago? Yeah, two days ago, um, was Juraj Herz's, and I'm very sorry for the bad pronunciation, 1978 Czech adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, um, which apparently if you're translating the title more directly and more authentically, it's called The Virgin and the Monster, so quite evocative. Um, And you can get this film on Blu-ray in the UK from Second Run. Um, it's a good Blu-ray release, it has a commentary, it has some nice special features. So if you even have the capability to play Blu-ray discs, I recommend that. Um, but yeah, the film, so obviously it's Beauty and the Beast, you know, it is pretty much the standard story, so I don't need to explain that. But the unique features of this one are Beast is a bird, so it's a man in a bird costume, which I know sounds very silly. Um, and sometimes it is admittedly very silly. There's a sequence where the Beast is like riding on horseback. It doesn't look great. Um, but, you know, you have to make allowances for these older films. You know, you can't expect, like, top-notch, like, visual effects. But there are some really great gripping close-ups, you know? And it's also, like, much more of a horror-tinged version of the story. So, like, at the beginning, there's, like, a complete massacre, you know? And you know that the Beast has done it. Um, and he's, like, literally murdering people. Um, and there's, like, it ends with, like, a close-up of a woman screaming as, like, her flesh is being torn open by the Beast's claws. Um, so it's pretty gnarly. Um, it would definitely give you nightmares if you watched it as a child. Um and you actually believe that the beast might kill Beauty at some point. He doesn't, of course, because that would be sad. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very unique and different spin. Sometimes it's a bit derivative of the Jean Cocteau version. Um, but what isn't? You know, what isn't? <laughs> I was going to say, how could film? you not be? Yeah, if you no, exactly. make a movie after that version. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, if you like fairy tale films and you're interested in like a weird, different take on it. I recommend that one. You know what I just realised between mm-hmm. that and Creature from the Black Lagoon, <laughs> we've been very predictable. Oh, we've we just are. Basically... We're so, so predictable. <laughs> yeah. And even something like Batman Returns, you know, there's like a total, like lots of horror and like gothic romance aspects to oh, that yeah, film the, as well. Yeah. The dynamic with Catwoman. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> We're easy to please. Yeah. No, exactly. You, you know us guys, you know us. <laughs> We're predictable. Um, and yeah, the other thing I'd like to recommend, well, there's always lots of stuff, um, but a film that I saw super recently was called Boiling Point. Um, that is a new film. Um, it is just out in UK cinemas at the moment. So that's how you'd watch it if you're in the UK. I don't know anything about an American release, unfortunately. We do need to work on that aspect of this section, as Kirsty's mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's basically a one take film. So it's like 90 minutes long. It's all shot in one take and it's a genuine one take, you know, no cheating. Um, and it's set in a restaurant kitchen and it's basically going between the restaurant kitchen and the front of house area, you know, where people are having their meals. And it's just the most like nightmarish shift in this kitchen that you could possibly envisage. And it stars Stephen Graham, who's a really talented actor. I think he's most known in the UK. You know, he does some really good TV work over here. But he's super, super impressive. You know, it was a really great part for him. And 
if anyone's seen Uncut Gems, it's basically Uncut Gems in a restaurant kitchen. You know, everything that could go wrong goes wrong in this film. And yeah, it's very anxiety inducing. So you need to be in the right frame of mind. But I loved it. I thought it was really good and really well done. I rewatched Big Night, the Stanley Tucci movie recently that's like set in the New York Italian restaurant. And it kind of sounds like a, yeah, like a cross between that and Uncut Gems. I've never heard of that film. I'll have to look into it dealing with customers and like that shift in behavior when you go through the door between the kitchen and the restaurant yeah no it does a really good job of capturing that and (laughs) some of the customers in boiling point oh you just want to like reach through the screen and strangle them they're such awful people um but yeah it's really really well done but i expect it would probably be a hard watch if you've actually like worked in a restaurant which i have not so it's like I've got a healthy distance from it, but yeah, it might bring back like trauma flashbacks or something if you've had experience of that. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then just very quickly, finally, um, because it's something that actually both Kirsty and I watched, um, we watched a Japanese, <laughs> I feel like I'm recommending the most niche, weird stuff. But anyway, I we both watched a Japanese version of Wuthering Heights, um, which was directed by Yoshishige, Yoshida, I'm very sorry for the pronunciation of that, um, and it's just a really, really unique and interesting take on that story um, because it makes it very culturally specific to Japan. You know, like everything in it is extremely Japanese, but it's still very recognisable as the story from the Emily Bronte novel, which is quite an achievement. You know, it's obviously quite a bit does need to be changed to make that change in setting work. You know, and feel believable, but it really does work. And it does some really cool stuff in terms of the visuals and how it captures certain ideas in the book. And I think I've always like moaned on and on on my Twitter about how hard it is to adapt Wuthering Heights and do it well. And I honestly think this might be the best version I've seen of that story. And I think it is because it's just not bothered about being loyal to the letter of the text in the way that many other films are. And then they just become a bit dry and formulaic, you know, because they're not really breathing anything new into it. You know, they're just very mm. rote tellings of that story. So I feel like this one, the director really had their own very unique, fresh take on it. And yeah, they brought their own voice to it. So yeah, what did you think about that film, Kirsty? So obviously you've seen it too. I loved it. Awesome. It's up there with um, the best adaptations, in my opinion, because like you said, it's not concerned with like just mimicking the plot and chronology of Wuthering Heights, the book. It's more about kind of evolving the themes of like that obsession and interdependency um, and grief. And I think it just does it amazingly and it is gorgeous. And like you say, kind of has these really interesting visual metaphors that it plays with. yeah, I highly recommend that. Although, as you said, it might not be the easiest to find. Um. Yeah, exactly. And I'd also warn people that it's a very morbid version. So I think a lot of the film versions, they do focus on, you know, the more florid romantic aspects of the book, which are absolutely there. I'm talking to you people who say Wuthering Heights isn't a romance. It is. Um, it is, but there's like a question of emphasis. Yeah, exactly. And, and this film emphasizes the morbid aspects, I think, of the story quite a lot. You know, and there's lots of like fatalism and lots of playing with ideas of like the boundary between life and death, you know, and what happens when these soulmates are separated, you know, the madness that can create in you, which are all ideas that are present in the book, but I think they're just not often emphasized in adaptations, which is why I was so pleased to see it in this one. Mm hmm. 
It's also not afraid to be more explicit about the sexual elements. <laughs> yes. Obviously, if you're trying to go for like a a classic period drama, you, you're going to be more evasive yeah. about that stuff or avoid it entirely. And, exactly. Um, it does not. So I'm sure it would provoke much peril clutching if you put in front of like a real book purist and they'd be like, oh my. <laughs> well, they can go and watch the Ray Fiennes Juliet Binoche <laughs> version, which I was excited to watch. And then it was so boring because oh, no. it was just like trying to do the book, but then squeezes the life out of it. Yeah, with with somehow with two amazing actors who should have great chemistry and yet have none. So that's for them, I guess. Yeah, no, I've never watched that version, and now I've heard your review. I don't think I ever want to. It just sounds really demoralizing. <laughs> I mean, you might want to eventually just to see what I mean. If you're yeah. like a, a completionist, you want to see all of the Wuthering Heights adaptations, but it's like yeah, Pokemon. All in all, Gotta not. catch them all. <laughs> you're your not heights. missing too much. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so then the bulk of this episode, or at least the bulk of the second half, because we've been talking for quite a lot about what of the stuff we've been reading and watching, which I'm happy about. I think it's a good thing. I've enjoyed talking about this. Um, but yeah, just before we get into the main discussion about the Book of Boba Fett, there's just a few other things to tick off. Firstly, yes, we have both seen Matrix Resurrections. Yes, we both have a lot of thoughts about it. No, we're not going to talk about them right now because that's a whole <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I kind of want to like make something more of it and compare the Matrix trilogy. Well, whatever quadrilogy. quadrilogy. Thank you. Um, I want to compare the Matrix quadrilogy to the Star Wars prequel trilogy and sequels and whatever, you know, but that's going to take a lot of work to prepare that episode you know so it would be like the main event if you will so yeah we'll save any thoughts until then basically so we're coming back to it um and the other main thing is we have both read ali hazelwood's the love hypothesis so do you want to give a quick little mini review like burst of feelings and opinions about that one Kirsty? well i guess i did when i read it which was a few months ago now yes um, yes and i haven't i haven't reread it yeah or anything but sure. i really enjoyed it and i recommend it to people and i recommended it to you and i'm so glad you read it i was worried you wouldn't because Aww. i know romance novels aren't for everyone yeah um even if they are raylo and you like raylo you know a modern au is different obviously like if you're more into just like them in canon it is they are essentially different characters so um i was i was pleased to see that you bought it and read it <laughs> Yeah, no, and I did read it and I did really enjoy it. I think, like Kirsty says, is a bit out of my comfort zone because, you know, obviously, like, I do love certain kinds of love stories, you know, like on film, like a lot of my favourite films are love stories and some of my favourite books are love stories, you know, like the aforementioned Wuthering Heights is one of my favourite books, for example. But obviously that's a very different kettle of fish from love stories set in the present day, you know, in like a modern context. I don't really read those, you know, like as a rule and it's not because I have any particular problem with them it's just not my usual like area of interest in terms of storytelling if that makes sense but I found it ever so charming you know it was a really fun enjoyable read I read it on the train going back home for Christmas which is like the perfect context in which to read something like that because you just want to like read something that's like a breath of fresh air you know you're like going into this fun relaxing period of time you kind of want to unwind from all the stress of work and your normal life and yeah it was like a wonderful portal into romantic escapism so yeah i really enjoyed it and it was also fun playing the game of which character is which star wars character if you know what i yeah, mean because they don't all 
like have a one-to-one do they no, like most of them yeah. do most of the main characters do but then there are others who like have shades of certain characters but you can't be quite sure exactly who they're meant to be or and they're probably just someone new like developed for that story because that does happen even like with the au's like on ao3 they'll just create a new character if for whatever story they're telling so yeah Exactly, because <laughs> I've obviously read a buttload of Raylo fan fiction in my time. Um, and, you know, you get used to the sort of like character types that certain Star Wars characters are turned into, which is often quite funny because they like bear very little resemblance to what those characters actually do in canon. So, like, for example, Bazine is often like heavily featured in fan fiction, you know, and often like an AU fan fiction. And she's like this like full person, you know, with like a backstory and like a personality. And you're kind of like reading it and you're like, in the film she had one line. <laughs> and she's not connected to anyone. No, she's not. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, but like here in the in the Love Hypothesis, for example, there were like two distinct characters, and both of them were displaying what I would call typical Hux traits. The, like one was good and one definitely wasn't you know and I won't mm. go into any more details so I don't want to spoil anything for people um, but yeah it made me want to find the original fan fiction and figure out like if that character was anyone in particular or if they were like an original character in the fanfic but yeah like that's just a deep dive into my brain that people don't need so it is in- sorry go on <laughs> No, it's interesting to think about because when you said Bazine, it reminded me like that was a very TFA era thing because there weren't other female characters, at least like in that generation, for Rey to kind of bounce off of and be friends with and be rivals with. But then, you know, now that the sequel trilogy is over, we have characters like Rose and Janna. Yes. Um, and and Paige is featured a lot as well because she doesn't tend to die in modern AUs, thankfully. Yes. Um, And yeah, someone like Hux once tross was out there was like the rise of ginger rose in the fandom <laughs> yeah which if you don't know is like the romantic pairing of hux and rose sounds strange to people not in the shipping community but it is a thing um and then that is like juxtaposed with finn rose i guess and then of course as you said you get like the actual closer to canon character of hux who is an ass usually yeah uh, for obvious reasons so yeah maybe that's what she did maybe she's split them in two but I don't, I don't want to be too spoilery in case people read it so yeah no, please exactly. do read it <laughs> and just to give people a little bit more context we will move on very shortly i promise but the, i think a big part of why people like fell into shipping ginger rose is because there's been like photos and i think maybe some like joint interviews of kelly marie tran and donald gleason and donald gleason obviously in real life he's so charming and lovely and kind you know and it looks like he was like so sweet and lovely with kelly and that's all it takes guys for people to start shipping characters because yeah i always think of that picture of them at the party where they're like surrounded by the people dressed as the praetorian guards yeah and kelly's in a red dress so it just looks really great and they look like they're having fun like yeah what more do people need (laughs) That's all that a ship needs to be set sailing cheerfully. It's lovely. Um, But yeah, no, that's great. I feel like that's all the preamble now. Um, And we're almost up to a neat round half hour mark in the recording. So that works well. In terms of like giving people a timestamp if they want to skip this and go straight to Boba. (laughs) (laughs) Although I hope hope people do listen to this. I've enjoyed talking about all these things. Um, Okay. But yeah, so Book of Boba Fett. It's time. It's here. We've had two episodes. Those episodes have been Stranger in a Strange Land and The Tribes of Tatooine. 
So we're going to have a little format where we start off by talking about general things, general expectations, general feelings. We'll talk a bit more about the episode specifically. Then we'll round off with like any closing thoughts and what we think might be coming up. So yeah, I think it feels like a reasonable structure. So yeah, I think a good place to start would be to say, where did we start? And by that I mean, what are our attitudes towards Boba Fett? Or at least what were those attitudes going into the show? Kirsty, tell us. And I didn't, it's hard to explain, I didn't really have anything going on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, well, not positive, not negative. Sure. I was like watching stuff that came up on my Twitter feed, but I wasn't seeking it out. Yep. Definitely had no sense of spoilers. I still don't know if they're out there and I'm not engaging with it. Yeah. Um, which for people who've listened for a long time, you know that I, I I do go seeking spoilers if I'm invested in something. So the fact that I didn't, I was just like, I'll watch it when it comes out, but I'm not really expecting anything. I'm just going to go into it with fresh eyes. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that it's makes sense. the same for you. I mean. Yeah, no, it's very similar to the show. I guess like a different angle would be like, do you have any history of feeling anything at all towards the Boba Fett character? So obviously that character was introduced in Empire Strikes Back in the original films, and then was also featured in Attack of the Clones in the prequels. Like, did you have any particular feelings based on that stuff with Boba? And even Boba in the Mandalorian, I guess, because that's all stuff we've had on him prior to the show. I guess, and I guess this comes back to the Attack of the Clones discussion we had with the novelization a few weeks back. Mm -hmm. I did get quite invested at that point in like Django and Boba's relationship that you obviously see in in the movie Attack of the Clones, Um, because I think that's really sweet. Um, I think Tem did a good job portraying Django, and um, but like original trilogy-wise, I never felt much of anything towards Boba Fett. And I didn't even know until I started engaging with the online fandom around the sequel trilogy. I didn't even know that like Boba Fett was such a popular character. Well, like I'd I'd see his figures around like in toy stores and stuff, but like it didn't really click for me that people were fans of that character. Yeah. And obviously that's been the case for decades. So this is on me. It's not like it's no judgment i'm not like why or whatever because you know when you're kids it's like well he has a cool costume obviously people want they want to have that toy um and kind of the beauty with a background character like that i guess and i've seen this a lot with characters like we were just talking about bazine um your imagination takes you somewhere and you imagine more of a personality and a backstory around that character so i guess in that way it makes sense it's just not something that i'd thought about yeah um so yeah, it wasn't until like getting online that I'd realised there was this fandom around the character. And I guess, unfortunately, it's kind of become associated with like, there's this like Broba Fett perception, right? <laughs> and it's that. not, it does not apply to everyone. Sure. Like, you know, one of my favourite podcasters is Hawes at Blue Harvest, and he is the biggest Boba Fett fan I can think of. He has been so excited about this show. He's been excited all the way through all of the movie rumors and everything. And he's been let down, obviously, with things changing with the news there. And he is the sweetest guy. So it's not like every person online who's a fan of Boba Fett is an asshole. But there is like the stereotype of of that that's out there. Um, and I don't really know where that came from. I guess it's like he's a symbol of that older original original trilogy fandom. And then there was this tension with the sequel trilogy becoming the new thing. So maybe that's it. 
Um, but yeah, in terms of my own investment of the character, it's really, it was just kind of like prequels focused. And even that takes, it's like secondary, obviously, to like Anakin and Padme and Anakin and Obi-Wan and Anakin's fall in general. So I really, I didn't know what to expect from this show. Like I was happy to see Tem back in the role. But beyond that, I wasn't, I don't know. I just kind of wanted to see, I guess, where his and um, Fennec Shan's relationship would go. Like what what they were going to tell what kind of story they were going to tell of them, but I didn't like have anything specific in mind. Yeah. No, and that all sounds completely reasonable. I think a lot of my background with the character is very similar, you know, because I feel like because Boba Fett represents such a strong visual, you know, he's like a very iconic Star Wars character and there's been a million figures and like there's a lot of appeal just in the aesthetics of Boba Fett. People forget just how like brief his like actual story has been you know up until this point and obviously I know there's a lot more about him in the comics and the books and stuff and I don't mean to take away from that but obviously only a niche of people have read those and for most people in terms of the story of Boba Fett it's probably cumulatively excluding the Mandalorians obviously there's considerably more Boba Fett in that show but like in the films it's probably like 10-15 minutes max you know and that's even including the time we get of him in the prequels because he is more significant in Attack of the Clones, I think, than either of the original trilogy films he appears in. But it's still like a small part, you know. It's an it leaves an impression, but it's not like a major part of the story, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I think because it's all so slim, you know, there's not much there of substance. It's left an awful is left an awful lot to the fans' imaginations, and I think that's part of why we're seeing what we're seeing, you know, in terms of people having really mythologized that character. And, bu- and built up an idea in their heads of what that character is and even should be you know and I think for a lot of people they've done that in like a healthy playful way you know where they're kind of like I have these like headcanons and ideas about Boba Fett but I'll just follow the story where it goes you know and I'm just really happy to see Tem playing this character again and I just want to see the story that these people come up with and you know that's the best case scenario you know in terms of fan approaches to these things um, but yeah I think for other people like ideas about what Boba Fett should be they've probably become so crystallized and so firm that seeing the version of Boba Fett we get in this show presumably came as a bit of a shock so I think that might be why some people have been a little bit skeptical maybe about what we've had so far but yeah we can talk about that a bit more when we discuss certain decisions and stuff that have been made in the particular episodes. Hmm. I guess thinking about it now and if I'm being truly honest in terms of like what I was anticipating, I was a bit like, oh, are we having another show set on Tatooine? Oh, it's another character who looks very similar, obviously, in design to The Mandalorian, the show that we just had. Is there going to be a bit of confusion? Um, so I, I, there was like an underlying apprehension and negativity. Yeah, and I think that's completely fair because on the surface you know like I feel like the Mandalorian a lot of people when that show first came out for many people probably thought that was the Boba Fett show you know well yeah casual viewers can't distinguish you know it's all Mandalorian armor it's all the same basic design so I'm sure there's plenty of people who watched that and thought sincerely that the main character was Boba Fett (laughs) you know and then there's like this new show with Boba Fett and they're like hang on I thought we'd already had this (laughs) can you imagine watching the mandalorian and then the actual boba fett shows up and you're like wait i thought that was meant to be boba fett (laughs) (laughs) and i'm sure that has happened you know yeah 
Yeah, I, I really thought that might happen with my dad, but he never got into The Mandalorian, which is quite interesting to me. And I kind of want to dig deeper into that with him to understand why, because he, he seems to really dig Book of Boba Fett, which is awesome. So um, did he not even get to the Boba Fett episode of The Mandalorian? No, he never really watched okay. it sequentially. I think when the Luke episode of Mandalorian came out, I kind of like forced him to sit down and watch it, <laughs> which is a bit unfair because it's like you know the culmination of two seasons in that show. <laughs> and he's like i don't know who any of these people are i don't know what they're doing yeah exactly i think i was treating the poor man a bit like a science experiment and i was like i want to gorge your reaction to see luke skywalker again i want to analyze your facial patterns and the reaction was pretty muted he didn't really care that much <laughs> which, which is quite funny to me um but yeah, he much prefers Boba Fett for some reason, and luckily there has been no confusion with the Mandalorian, so hopefully that's quite a rare problem, but uh, honestly, I think if it's never happened, I would pay someone money, you know, in terms of like placing a bet on that, because I'm sure someone out there is confused why there's two shows about the same guy. There was a Star I can't remember which one, but there was a Star Wars podcast I listened to recently, and so it was Star Wars focused, these guys are big fans, and they kept referring to oh, they, they kept mixing them up i can't remember who they were talking oh, about yeah. like din maybe it was either din or boba but they kept mixing them up that you know it kept saying the mandalorian or boba fett like they they were just interchangeable so you know people at that <laughs> level of fandom are getting them mixed up yeah, the general know. audience definitely is to some degree yeah absolutely that says all so it? so i was just a bit like oh is it going to be more of the same is this enough of a departure and i guess the idea is that it's meant to be like in timeline wise is it well it has its own like fractured timeline within the show itself but it's kind of between mandalorian season two and three right so it's like in that area of the universe like the shows are meant to be connected in some way yeah because obviously Fennec's a character too that was originally in Mando. Yeah, exactly. Because I think the show's split across two timelines, isn't it? There's the timeline where it's literally just after, presumably, the events of Return of the Jedi. Or maybe even at the very beginning during Return of the Jedi. So I think that film takes place over several days. And I can't imagine Boba would have survived being like digested in the stomach of the Sarlacc for <laughs> several days. So presumably that was quite speedy, you know? Um, so yeah I guess it's roughly happening at the same time slash just after and yeah then it jumps forward five years apparently so all the stuff with Fennec and Boba together is five years after that point mm. so yeah um, but yeah in terms of overall thoughts I, I've, I'm really enjoying it so far I think it's a lot of fun I'm not convinced there's a great deal of substance going on yet you know it could easily prove me wrong who knows um, but it's fun and I think the most important thing for me that's really differentiating it from The Mandalorian is how much emphasis there is on Boba's humanity and showing so much of Tem's face playing him you know because the actor is so integral to the character in the show you know I feel like there's a lot of Tem being infused into the characterization of Boba you know you really feel his personality come through and I love that because people will be used to me whining and complaining over and over again about how we don't see enough of Pedro Pascal's face in The Mandalorian which I still hold to <laughs> I really think we need more of his face because yeah you know I think there's limits to how far you can go when your main character is just wearing a helmet all the time 
you know, I think to captivate me and keep my interest, you need that person to be a person, you know, you need to see their emotions and feel their personality. And it kind of infuriates me that so much of The Mandalorian is actively about denying that to you. And it serves a purpose in that show, and I don't want to make this a Mandalorian discussion, you know, but I'll just cut off there and say that I really like that we're seeing so much of Boba's face. You know, Tem has a lovely face. I like seeing him. It's wonderful. Yeah, he's very expressive, and you're right in that his own personality... I mean, I don't know Tem, so it is like a projection, but the impression that it gives, because it feels so natural, and because we've seen him being playful and funny behind-the-scenes stuff, it does kind of feel like he's getting the chance to shape a lot of Boba's personality, which, again, I guess is like a benefit of Boba being something of a blank slate at this point and that he feels quite different from Django because you have that interesting nature versus nurture thing there where you know obviously he is an actual clone of Django but he's had a very different life and he you know he had the love of that father figure even though that relationship was cut short um and then he's had all these different experiences since and of course when we see him in the show like in the flashbacks he's just gone through this serious dangerous near-death experience so that changes someone too doesn't it yeah absolutely um and yeah i just appreciate that we're seeing him laid low to the extent that he is and he's really having to like build himself back up from nothing and i feel like it does lean into a lot of what the mandalorian was doing and that was telling very very archetypal genre stories you know and like lean into like lots of very basic cinematic images you know very simple powerful images to try and tell like an internal story to an extent you know about how the character's feeling and the place they're in psychologically and I feel if anything this is going further than the Mandalorian did with that because there is such an emphasis on Boba's childhood vulnerability you know and there's lots of flashbacks to him finding Django's helmet when he was a boy and being sad so yeah I'm curious to see if that like leads to anything or builds to something in terms of like repeatedly going back to that idea of him as a boy you know and missing his father so yeah so I think they have cast a child you know to be it could just be a body double or it could be something more significant but someone who resembles Daniel Logan who was the actor who played Boba Fett when he was a young boy in Attack of the Clones basically Hmm. so yeah we will see what comes of that and there's lots of rebirth symbolism going on with the story after he is like well not rescued by the Tuscans because he becomes their prisoner initially but um that you know he survives the Salak, he's kind of rebirthed when he comes out of it yes and then like we've seen him in the Bacta as you said and then he gets his you know new robes at the end of that second episode so it is kind of like he's being reforged as a person yeah and kind of going on this you know it's a spiritual experience too because he's got the whole lizard thing and the dreams and <laughs> yeah no, no it's really cool <laughs> lots of interesting stuff going on i think tem's doing a great job definitely yeah no i really like what he's bringing to it um i think this is probably a good time to start talking about more specific stuff so we'll just run through the first episode which is stranger in a strange land that first episode is directed by robert rodriguez um and yeah what did you think about the like appearance of that show of that episode Kirsty, and just how it was done from a directing standpoint I was a bit um I don't know what the word is I was a bit underwhelmed by Mm. the first episode sure which again it's kind of strange because I didn't go in with any expectations 
I wonder if subconsciously I was kind not I know I wasn't because I'd heard that there wasn't going to be this like zinger at the end like a cliffhanger or anything like there was with baby Yoda at the beginning of um, Amando but it just didn't quite land for me and I can't even really put my finger on why yeah uh, I think my highlight was like the the scene with Jennifer Beals at the the new cantina oh yeah um, that was really I good I love her as I love her as an actress, so that that was a highlight. I think she looks so fantastic in that costume. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like even the like the fight choreography, I wasn't enamored with. Um, I thought some of the dialogue was a little bit stilted and awkward. But maybe that's also a first episode kind of thing. They're just kind of finding their feet. So yeah, I was I was much more in love with the second episode. I do know what you mean. I think I found the first episode a bit more bitty. I think then the second, um, and I felt like there was more back and forth, you know, in terms of there's more switching between present and past. Whereas in the second episode, it's kind of like the first half of that is in the present, you know, dealing with Boba and Fennec and them dealing with their situation. And then the second half was in the past where it's Boba with the Tuscans, you know, in that story. And I think that really helped to let that like background stuff breathe you know and actually tell a real narrative you know whereas I feel like it was a series of like episodic little details in the first episode and yeah I can see how it would be a bit of a frustrating experience um and yeah I think in the I think I enjoyed the first episode more than you did but it was definitely weaker than episode two and I think if I had to pinpoint something that I felt they were really struggling with, it was a lot of that modern, a lot of that present day stuff with Boba and Fennec, which I think mm. was especially disappointing to me. So I was really excited to see them together, you know, and see yeah. how they'd operate together. Um, and yeah, I don't know what it is, but I agree with you. It did feel a bit stilted and I'm not completely sold on the chemistry between the actors, to be honest, so far. I, although I feel like it might have been like a bit better in The Mandalorians. Obviously, they, they're teamed up there, you know, so we've seen it before. But yeah, it just felt like a little bit forced, maybe, some of the lines. I don't know. It's hard to pin down. Yeah, I you know, I wonder if when we come back to this at the end of the season, it's going to feel like part of that was almost intentional because they're like waiting for some kind of emotional connection or breakthrough to happen actually between the characters in a later episode. Because at the moment, they've got this kind of weird... It's like a professional relationship, right? But then we also know that Boba saved her life. Yeah. Or we pres- presume, right? So presumably there's, that's going to come up and something between them is going to be discussed. You know, like I would love to see an episode that focuses more on Fennec and, and their relationship. I expect that it will come. So Yeah, they're definitely. And I'm not saying I need there to be a romance between the two of them. I obviously don't. But there was a huge missed opportunity <laughs> when like Boba is in the back to tank and like he gets out and Fennec is there you know talking to him he's totally like ripped you know he looks amazing <laughs> he's like 60 you know it's super impressive <laughs> he's in great shape basically it is all just filmed so dispassionately you know it's like come on you could make so much more of this I think it leaps out because it's not even as you say that there's like a gap where they have to have a romantic relationship it doesn't have to be that kind of dynamic but you could have like a joke or just some um anything just something (laughs) like give it a bit of zest but yeah as you said it kind of fell a bit flat and it's like you can just be a bit more out there um yeah I I yeah I, I just think I I don't want to say like I expected more because I I didn't in the I didn't go in with a certain thing that I wanted to see 
Uh, I think it, it was just very low key. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think I also want to see them get to a point where Fennec is more on a level footing with Boba. Because at the moment, I feel like she's almost like his guard dog, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And some of it's funny, you know, like I like her asking him, can I kill him? <laughs> and stuff, you know, that made me laugh. But at the same time, it seems like at the moment, her sole reason for existing is to do like the like the hard work, you know, of like chasing people and like capturing people for him and stuff. And I really like Ming-Na Wen and I really like the character. So I want there to be more to it, basically. And I've got my fingers crossed that there will be, you know, I've doubted them before and it's come to this sort of thing and they have come through. So I hope this will be a case where they like shatter my skepticism and remove all cynicism from my brain because no i don't mean that you know i mean relative to the character of fennec you know i'd like to be surprised but i wonder if there is going to have to be an element of her stepping away from and kind of deprogramming from that assassin role that she's had for most of her life yeah because we when we meet her you know the earliest chronology that we have of her is the Bad Batch, and that's what decades before, right? Yeah, no, in theory, she should be like a young whippersnapper then, but she looks exactly <laughs> the same. <laughs> so she's been living that life for so long that maybe it's kind of hard to snap out of it and do something else. Yeah, and that's true. I'd like to see Fennec find a hobby, you know, something other than bounty hunting and assassinating people because, yeah, there's more to life, there's more to life. Um, I know you already mentioned her, but I just want to go back to um, Garza Fwip a bit, which is a bugger to say, I must say. Um, but yeah, I love her cantina. And also, what about those Twi'lek employees? It honestly, Kirsty, it just blew my mind that now <laughs> I now have a hot Twi'lek male. I, I actually thought of you when he came on screen because... <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Because you complained about the beauty standards of male Twi'leks in the past. So I was like, finally, something for Rachel. It, it's honestly, though, it's a bit like Uncanny Valley. And I know I sound like I can never be pleased now. <laughs> oh, no. But there's just something uncanny about it, you know, where they've always looked like satanic monsters in the past. And now it's like he's got the abs and he's got like a nice smiley face. And it's just like, what's going on? It's like Maybe he has bodies. one... He- Maybe he has one human parent, like <laughs> Maybe, Jason yeah. Sindula. Yeah. Yeah. That would make more sense to me, I think, because, yeah, whatever I saw there, it did not correlate with my <laughs> mental image. And maybe it's just me, you know, I've clearly got outdated, archaic views about what a Twi'lek male has to be. So, yeah, they, they can be handsome too, so good for them. Um, but, yeah, I don't know where to go from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know Max Rebo loved seeing Ma- I was, him. I Max was Rebo, really happy yeah. to see Max and that he's got gainful employment. Um, so yeah, good for him. And I always feel bad because there's the other guy, you know, and I can't even remember what species it is, but like another alien who was also there, you know, on Jabba's barge. The Jizz guy. Yeah, exactly. I can just never remember his name. <laughs> he, he's less important. It's all about Max, you know. I just love that blue elephant guy, who, like just living the dream. Uh, very sad not to see Snice Noodles, though. So the band clearly <laughs> broke up at some point. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but just the way that like, the camera pans over them, it felt less like in your face with the references. Maybe it was just like that was more of the actual story for me to focus on. Um, it just didn't feel quite so obnoxious as it does sometimes, which I appreciated. Yeah, no, that's true. It's like... Yeah, as we all know, one of like our main beefs with Mando season two is there are a lot of very, very in-your-face callbacks to pre-existing characters, and they just make a point of like really like lingering on them and stuff. And 
Whereas here, it's just like, here's Max, he's doing fine. There you go, let's move on. And yeah, I, it felt a, it was obviously gratuitous. They did not need to have Max Rubo there, but it was more like, oh, it's nice to see him. I'm glad he's doing well, you know? And I felt like they didn't linger on him more than they needed to. It did get me a bit confused. I was like, is this meant to be the same cantina or is it a different one? Oh, I'm pretty sure it's different. But, but you have the same characters there playing the band? Um, I'm not sure Max was in the cantina. I think he was in Jabba's palace. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, so he's just moved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. But the other guy was, right? Um, Like, you mean the alien whose name I can't remember? Yeah, he's in A New Hope, right? So. Oh, that's a good cantina. point. Yeah, well, I guess maybe they're moving around. I, she looks like she has a lot of money, so maybe she can just pay them all. She ha- <laughs> she headhunted them. <laughs> um, but yeah, we clearly couldn't afford nice noodles, so it's very sad. Um, but yeah, even there, I guess it it might just be like actually intentional in the story where Bob is trying to navigate this new role and like people don't really know how to speak to him, but everything just felt kind of awkward. But it felt incredibly awkward. <laughs> maybe that was the point that she's like trying to gauge and size up this new character about town. Yeah. He's obviously going to have some authority and he's like, I intend to rule with respect. And it's like, well, what's that going to look like? Because <laughs> yeah. you say, you literally say that you're the new crime lord. <laughs> But a respectful one. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, Boba, baby. Like You've already got beef with the new mayor or the old mayor and you're the new guy. Yeah, I honestly think that's one of the things I find most funny about this show is that Boba and Fennec both seem so incredibly ill-equipped and incompetent at what they're trying to do. It's, mm. it's kind of like they have the abstract idea that, oh, it would be nice to be the crime lords of Tatooine. But then in practice, they've got no idea what they're doing. <laughs> Yeah. And I kind of feel it would almost be better as a comedy for that reason, like a pure comedy. You know, There are definitely comedy There's moments. There's lots of comedy, yeah, yeah. But I just feel it's such an absurd premise in some ways. But I'll talk about this more, you know, when we get to predictions and what we hope and how we hope the show will develop going forward. Um, but yeah, I've got ideas in mind for how it could sort of make more sense of why this is even a thing. You know, why does he want to be the crime lord? Which I think is a beef that I had before the show started. But I think based on some of the flashback stuff, I have a bit more hope that there's like an actual actual substance behind his motive. But we can come to that later. Yeah, presumably things between those two timelines are going to kind of link up. Um, and the stuff with the Tuscans in episode two made me wonder if he's like doing it to like realign the political and socioeconomic factions on Tatooine. Is there the ability to do that within however many episodes we're going to get? Is it like six or something? It's going to have to move pretty fast. Yeah, but... he's got quite a big job ahead of him. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if this show's a one-off actually, or if they're going to make more seasons of it. Um, but I presumably will realise by the end of the eight episodes whether there's room for them to continue this particular story. Um, but yeah, I feel like that might be most of the stuff I wanted to say about this episode in particular. Did you have anything else, Kirsty? Um, I don't think so. Okay, cool. So let's move on to the next episode, The Tribes of Tatooine, which is directed by Steph Green. Um, and yeah, and I know you were much more enthusiastic about this one, Kirsty. So yeah, do you want to share what differentiated it for you from the previous one, which you obviously a bit more mixed on? Yeah, I just I really liked how it it felt like a self-contained narrative that you could watch this as like a standalone episode that Bob was going on this journey and kind of developing these relationships with other characters. 
Um, I felt like it did a lot, obviously, in terms of the world building on Tatooine and kind of evolving our understanding of who the Tuscans are. Um, and just like visually, I thought it was striking. I thought Steph Green did a great job. I thought Tem's performance was fantastic. I thought there were some like surprising comic moments in uh, unexpected, really, because like in otherwise serious scenes, and then like Tem would just put like a, a funny note on a delivery that would just feel quite funny in a dry sense. Yeah, like um, a banfa. <laughs> So and when the lizard goes up his nose and he's like, I think I swallowed it. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Oh my god. Yeah, I felt like the humour hit much better in this episode than the previous one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just really charming. Yeah, and obviously you have like a, a good balance of like epic action with the train and um, the ambushing and everything and then um, quite personal smaller like you know close-up scenes with with tam and i you know my misgiving here is that i wish the tuscan characters had names because that yeah. makes it so much easier to talk about them and and maybe they will in future but um i've seen that raised by a few people as like oh it's great that we get more of a sense of who they are um and they're seen on equal footing with him but yeah they probably have names at this point yeah no, I agree with you. Um, so I have seen some really interesting discussions online, especially on Twitter, about you know the complexities of how the show's using the Tuscans and how it's representing them. Because um, obviously there's lots of correlation between representation of the Tuscans and representation of like certain real life like groups, you know, especially nomadic groups like the Bedouins and stuff. Um, and even Native Americans, of course, you know, like these different cultures that have historically been like quite marginalized and persecuted. And I think the show is very, very aware of that real world legacy and that real context. And I, I do think it's doing a pretty decent job of how it grapples with that. It's not definitely not perfect. Um, and yeah, things exactly like that point about how the characters aren't named characters. It does inherently depersonalize them somewhat you know it does mean they kind of serve a more symbolic role than like a personal role and they don't feel individualized like the other characters do um so yeah i do feel like that sort of thing is an area they could do better with yeah it's tough isn't it because if you step back ultimately the effect is that they're still there to further boba fett's story as a character mm. but i think you also have to balance that i mean you i don't think you know, from my reading of the, as I was watching it, I was like, well, you really can't understate the significance of Boba Fett here being portrayed by an indigenous person. Yeah. Like, I think that is so key in what Tem brings to that role, as we were saying earlier. Um, you know, so it, potentially it sidesteps a lot of issues there otherwise. Um, and not just like superficially, I genuinely think that it makes a difference to have Tem in that role and what he brings to it and what they've chosen to do with the character of Boba just within these two episodes. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so that it does, yeah, it is pretty striking what they do with him here. Yeah, and I did actually look up some interviews that Tem had given um, because, you know, I wanted to hear from him about his like approach to it, you know, and his personal feelings about it. Um, and I found two key things. The first one is actually from an interview where he was talking about Boba Fett and the Mandalorian, but I do think has relevance to what we've seen now in the book of Boba Fett. Uh, Sia, could you read out the quote I've highlighted? It starts with um, Morrison's Fett, please. Mm -hmm. 
Morrison's fair in particular is all clenched teeth and anger. Part of this feel stems from Morrison's own culture. I come from a warrior background in New Zealand, he says. I'm a Maori and I've been trained. It gives me something to draw on. I was trained as a young boy back in New Zealand in the art of ahaka. Ha is the breath and ka is the fire. I'm using my warrior background as a source of energy and as a source of confidence. And I haven't really, unfortunately, been able to find as many interviews that Tam has given about the choices made in the Book of Boba Fett specifically. But I think, you know, if you look at the style of the dance at the end of this second episode, like, I, I'm not very familiar with Maori culture, so please, if I'm saying something silly or getting things completely wrong, please email to let us know because I really would love to be corrected. But my impression from having seen videos of Tem participating in, like, hacker, you know, doing that style of dance you can see influences from that traditional ceremonial dance from his culture in how the like dance is staged at the end of episode two of the book of Boba Fett and I just really like that because I feel like if you are going to tell a story where it's engaging with these ideas about like native peoples and indigenous tribes and how they've been basically screwed over by these colonizing presences I think having a man who's actually from an indigenous culture in the real world come in and have a say in how certain things are staged and bring in his own background and experiences into the part and the staging of certain things. I think that's really important. Obviously, it would be way better if it was actually written by an indigenous person <laughs> rather than like a white guy. Um, but it's a step, you know, and you can tell that there is collaboration going on between Tem and the creative team. And I appreciate that. And I know that. So, yeah, it's a promising sign. Yeah, and before the show started, this is just none of this was stuff that I'd anticipated because I didn't even have any sense that we would have Tuscans in the show. I didn't have any idea that they would be the ones to find um, Boba once he's kind of gotten out of the Sarlacc. And even after episode one, I wasn't sure that we would see them again. So I am wondering at this point, like, is that going to be a thread throughout the whole show? Yeah. No, exactly. So it does seem really integral so far, and I hope they keep it up. So I think it's easily one of the more interesting aspects of it. Um, and Tem did actually give an interview with Entertainment Weekly where he discussed a specific choice, you know, that had been made in the Book of Boba Fett, um, and specifically in this episode. Uh, so could you read out the part I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. Boba experiences the shift in perspective firsthand when he's captured by a Tuscan tribe after escaping the Great Pit of Carcoon. The just-aired second episode depicts his evolution from prisoner to ally as he helps the nomads hijack a spice-transporting train that passes through their territory. The sequence ends with Boba su successfully ensuring that his tribe receives reparations for this use of their land in the form of a toll. That storyline resonates with Morrison, who traces his, his ancestry back to New Zealand's own indigenous tribe, the Maori. We know all about that word colonised, he says. It's a great opportunity for me as a Maori from New Zealand to put us on the world stage again. I feel a sense of responsibility. And Morrison took that responsibility seriously by bringing his heritage to set, literally. I put the name of one of my ancestors on my chair, my changing room and on my parking space, he remembers. So when I pulled in, there was my ancestor's name, Tamate Kapua, one of the captains that traversed the Pacific and arrived in New Zealand. It gave me a sense of pride and a sense of responsibility for the people back home who will get to watch some of this stuff. Yeah, and I just think that's so cool because I feel like this is quite an unusual thread to have in, you know, like a super mainstream show on like a big platform like Disney+. Plus. 
So I'm really happy that Tem is being made so integral to all this because, you know, obviously he has been like an important figure in Star Wars fandom, you know, and he's been like a really popular guy of the fans. But I, I hate to say it, it's the sort of thing where the cynical part of me could have seen them finding like a new actor, you know, a younger actor to replace him, you know, for whatever reason, like convenience or whatever. But I love that they went back to Tem and they used him. And obviously I knew they were doing this for ages because he was in The Mandalorian. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great. And they're not only doing that, they're actually embracing, you know, who Tem is as a person and bringing his own culture into it. So I think it's cool. Yeah, I wondered if that was actually going to be an issue with the timeline and like Tem's age at this point. Sure. Um, but I think they're getting around it with like, you know, he, <laughs> he looks great, obviously. Sure. He's in amazing shape and so is Ming-Na Wen. Um, but like they're getting around it with like him needing to be treated with a bacter and stuff and, and being out there in Tatooine. Like, I think he is meant to be maybe one or two decades younger than Tem's age in real life. I think that's right. Yeah. Think about the timeline. Um, And I guess there's precedent for this sort of thing, isn't there? Because I think like Anakin, you know, I think he's played by like an actor in his 60s or 70s when the mask is taken off from Return of the Jedi. But in canon, using bunny quotes, (laughs) he was like late 30s, early 40s or something. I think early 40s, actually, he wasn't in his 30s. But he was still like a young guy, basically, you know, but he looked like a really ancient man. And they can get around. He literally hadn't seen the sun for decades. Yeah, no, no. But again, like, I think it's, they can use a similar, like, plausible explanation with Boba, can't they? Because they can say, well, his skin got burnt with stomach acid while he was in the sarlacc pit <laughs> and like all this like fantastical nonsense that they can use because it's star wars um yeah they're making it work for them so good all around um and yeah i i did like that whole plot with the train heist and stuff i thought it was good to have like a really strong central set piece in the second episode so i think that sort of thing is perhaps what the first episode was missing you know in terms of like a central idea you could really glom onto you know it's just mm. boba's captured and is a bit shit and then at the end there's like a ray harry and monster that they need to kill <laughs> and it's all just like a little bit brief and it doesn't feel quite as significant whereas i think here you can feel there's like a real sense of achievement for the tuscans as a tribe in terms of defeating that train and you feel like sense of elation with them when they achieve what they've been setting out to do so it's really cool yeah, there was almost a sense of it reminded me a bit of Solo as well. Like obviously with the train and the attempted heist, but like seeing the pikes as well, like getting these little tie-ins. Yeah, exactly. Um, that spice smuggling—you've got to break up the tr- drug trade. I do wonder if that's what Boba was interested in. He seemed very particularly interested in the spice and making sure that, that wasn't being smuggled in. So he's part of a "just say no" campaign in the galaxy far, oh far God. away. Sorry. I don't think they have those kind of campaigns and stuff. <laughs> like honestly, I think this is why, Kirsty, we need more material focused on the hollow net and exactly what media is being put I into would these love people's stuff lives. Like that. Yeah, Same. you get elements in the Clone Wars, but yeah, give me what the average person is experiencing in their lives. Yeah. What kind of media are they consuming? You know they're really struggling to get any films off the ground in Star Wars. <laughs> I think they really need a Star Wars network. That's what they yeah. need. They need the film network, but it's stalls and it's about mm. the hollow net. And yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, because I, I was thinking about the timeline because obviously, like, he comes out of the Sarlacc, so that's mm-hmm. still in Return of the Jedi. But I'm like, how the 
I guess the point of Tatooine is it's a bit of a backwater. Obviously, once Luke's from there, it's changed a little bit. And obviously, we see Rey go back to it in The Rise of Skywalker. But I'm like, do any of these people have a sense of what's going on with the wider galactic conflict at this point? Or are they just completely oblivious? That's a great transition point to discuss Cammy and Fixer. I was going to say, yeah, because they must... Do they have any idea what's happened to Luke? <laughs> he's gone. Honestly, no, he's dead. in terms of like, I'm just pitching projects left, right and centre. If anyone from Lucasfilm is listening, like, take them, please. I want to see this happen. But I think you could make a genuinely interesting show about what happens to the normies who are left behind when Luke leaves Tatooine. And like, how would it feel to be like the friend of a guy who's like a complete legend now, you know, and almost like a quasi mythical person? And you're just still leading the same crappy dead-end life on the same crappy dead-end planet. I don't think there will be room in the show to go into Cammy and Fix's feelings about Luke. I thought that would be a bit of an unearned digression. But I'd be interested. I'd like to know what they're thinking about that. I was kind of sad that there wasn't any sort of exchange at all between them and Boba. They're just kind of like cameos and like wink-winks. But yeah, there's only a certain amount of screen time, so... I thought it was well done because I don't think you needed to know who they were to like grasp what was going on with that scene because it like really it could have been anyone. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I'm guessing a lot of people who watched that didn't know. Yeah. Like I didn't know until afterwards that the like evil Wookiee is a character from the, the comics. Oh yeah, no, same. Yeah. yeah. And it was funny when I was rewatching the episode for the podcast, I suddenly really noticed how much they were lingering on that character. Yeah. I don't- and they were like giving him like a proper like hero shot, like you should clap or something. I wondered if it was just because it was another Wookiee and it's like, oh, Chewie's like such a, a well-known character. You know, it's like, oh, it's another one. Yeah. Is he a character from the comics? I assume so. Like, right. I, that's kind of the parallels that I've been seeing people post and stuff. But okay. I still don't know like his name or anything or story. Yeah. But he's meant to be like a bodyguard for the huts, right? Yeah, that definitely seems to be the vibe. And they were cool to see. They were very cool to see. I did like that. Um, we were talking a bit before the actual recording about how like, people are going to judge me for this and I accept that. But there's a bit of a weird, creepy incest vibe from those hearts. I do not like it. It's just That is just not something that leapt out to me at all. <laughs> yep. I, again, this is probably why I should not even be talking about this. But I just got uncomfortable vibes. I felt like a sense of like deep, deep corruption, like the Borgias in space, but they're disgusting hot creatures they were sat too close for your comfort they were sat way too close for comfort that's it. <laughs> yeah. exactly so we're something. talking about giant slugs <laughs> um yeah i think this is a sign i need to stop thinking about them because the mind can take you to horrible places so was it actually yeah. explicit in the episode that they were related or was like one of them Jabba's cousin and the other one was their spouse? Yeah, no, they're definitely related. They called them twins. Oh, okay. So All right. they're very okay. related, basically. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, let's move on from that. So <laughs> I liked that the Lady Hut had a little fan. I thought that, that was, was a cute. nice touch. Yeah, and it was especially funny to me because she just has this like tiny, delicate fan. And obviously, in the real world, fans, they were often used by, like, high-born ladies, you know, so that they could cover their mouths while they were gossiping and didn't want people to notice they were talking about other people. And she's clearly trying to do that at one point because she's holding the fan to her mouth while she's talking to her brother and trying to scheme with him. But they've got such huge mouths that <laughs> she's only covering, like, the corner. 
like, I think there's like limited utility to this deer. Um, but yeah, they're, they're just like funny little touches like that that cracked me up. I, I liked them. They were funny. Yeah, they were very well done. Yeah, I, I do have questions about the whole sequence of events though. So they obviously captured one of the guys who tried to assassinate them in the first episode. They threatened to feed him to the Rancor and then he tells them that the mayor sent them. And they go to the mayor and there's just like awkward, like there's just like an awkward attempt to get an audience of the mayor than they eventually do. The mayor sends them to Garth Whip's place and then Garth Whip is basically like, oh yeah, go outside or something. <laughs> so it's just like being sent from place to place to place. Mm. And I didn't buy the logic, you know, um, but whatever, it's fine. They got to see the huts in the end. Um, and... Yeah, I, I just hope there's a bit more logic later on with that sort of thing. I feel like Garza Whip, there's got to be something going on there. I think she's scheming. I think she's probably one of the people trying to get Boba Fett killed for various reasons. There's got to be more to her character because they keep going back to her. Yeah, exactly. She's not just a nice lady running an entertainment establishment. I'm sure of that anyway. There's more going on. But we will see. Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to say about that episode specifically, Kirsty? I'm sure there's so much that I'm forgetting. Sure. But we could always we can always come back to it in um a later episode and maybe there's certain things that they'll follow up on. Um but all in all I just found it very emotional, especially like the flashbacks, like what took place with the Tuscans, um, them carving his own weapon, him going on kind of like a spiritual daydream journey. Um you know, him getting his new garments, like it was all really well done. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did like how that recontextualized his appearance in The Mandalorian because obviously when yeah. we first see him there, he's wearing those robes that the Tuscans gave him, and you know there's no lingering on the meaning of that or where those robes came from, and you don't really care. But now that does feel much more significant when you know that it's like playing this very heavily ceremonial role in him being accepted as part of that community. Um, so yeah, I did like that. So I think you'd get more out of it when you go back to his first appearance in The Mandalorian now. Mm -hmm. But we also know that he's like missing the connection to Jango that he has through the armor. So he'll now be on a quest to to find that with Mando. Yep, exactly. I'm curious to see how they're going to integrate the events of Mando with this show because I feel like at the moment it's relatively standalone. You know, you don't necessarily have to have seen Mando. It would obviously help you. So I'm curious if they'll like touch on the events of that show at all when we catch up a bit with the timeline. But we will see. I think hopefully the way to do that is through Fennec and her rescue, if if they talk about that a bit more. Yeah. Um, and I really hope we do yeah. get that because I need to see the basis that that relationship was formed on. So at the moment it's all just a bit like weird and ill-defined. Yeah, at the moment it just kind of feels like she's there because there's a sense of life debt. Yeah, you know, like he rescued her, so she's with him. But like, yeah, we want to see more of that. Exactly. And and what she's got going on at this point. Yeah, I want to know what she's getting out of the arrangement. Um. <laughs> lol. Um. Okay, but yeah, that's a good point. I think to just round things off. So, yeah. Get... Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention. Oh, yes, I yes. knew I would forget something. No, is no, Matt Berry. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. He's the voice of Eight D Eight, the droid. Yeah, the execution uh, so droid. Yeah. Yeah, so far I think they could be doing a better job of utilizing his brilliant brand of humor. Yeah. So I must um, say I barely noticed it was him. Like right, I had, pointed yeah. out, I realized obviously, but 
yeah, is not very recognisable so far. And it's yeah, like, you're not the only one. <laughs> and he ha- he does have such a distinctive voice as well. But if you're not using it in a humorous sense, I mean, you know, whatever show people have seen him in, probably mostly what we do in the shadows. But like, you know, Snuffbox, IT Crowd, Toast of London, like he's just hilarious in everything. Yeah, Goth so, Marangi. Yeah. Yeah. No, you cannot go wrong with Matt Berry. He's Boosh. brilliant. Yeah, he's been in all sorts. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully they, they ramp that up and make him a bit of a star. No, I agree. And can you remember they um also have a line about how we really need a protocol droid in episode one? Yes. Yeah, so they do have that line. And just hearing that line made me think, God, I think Matt Berry would honestly be much more entertaining as a protocol droid. I think he would make a really funny protocol droid. At the moment, he just seems a bit too serious in that current Well, form. yeah, because yeah. it's like you, you've either got to go all in on the, oh, he loves torturing. He's, you know, such a violent, but he's there's just not that much there at the moment. So yeah. I'm like, come on, no, exactly. ramp it up. So I remember one of the droids in Afra's crew is like a complete sociopath. Oh, like, yeah, so people. funny. And yeah, like do that, <laughs> or just like cast Matt Berry as that droid. That would be funny. Um, but yeah, hopefully all that comes to fruition at some point. We'll see. Um, yeah, so that actually segues nicely into hopes for the future and where we think the show might be going. And we're not going to do any like super elaborate predictions because I feel like you know we're not watching the show in that way. You know, we're not like a theory podcast or something. So we're not going to like plot out arcs and stuff for where the show might go, but. Yeah, is there anything in particular you'd like to see from the show as it develops, Kirsty? I guess I do just want to see more reflection and exploration of um, Boba and Django's relationship, whether that takes the form of like flashbacks or dreams or something. Um, and of course, as I've been saying, um, Fennec and Boba's relationship, and maybe even a whole episode that seems more focused on Fennec since Boba's getting so much of the, the airtime so far. Yeah. No, I agree. How about you? Yeah, no, similar. I definitely want more substance to Fennec. You know, I want her to be more than like a glorified like bodyguard to Boba Fett, which is kind of the role she's fulfilling at the moment. I want to see her as more of a character in her own right. Um, and I feel like I do want to understand more about why Boba Fett is like going down this road. You know, why does he even want to stay on Tatooine? So I think that's a good question because it's not like he was from Tatooine or anything. He mm. he was, you know, originally from Camino, a water world. And they make a big point in episode two of do, showing that contrast between the desert and the waters of Camino, um, which I really liked. It created some really vivid imagery. But I want to understand more about why this world has become so meaningful to him and why he wants to stay there. I wonder if it is because of the Tuscans and like Jabba's relationship with them and what he can do to kind of repair that. Yeah, no, exactly. And I hate to say it, but I think if I do have one prediction, I kind of predict that I think something bad is going to happen to that Tuscan tribe. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want it either, but I feel like it might happen. So yeah, I'd kind of be annoyed. I feel it's a lazy route to go down. You know, they basically frame it as him like seeking revenge for the like found family almost that he acquired, you know, over this experience. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that isn't the case. But I am increasingly suspicious every episode that goes by where in the present there is no evidence of any presence from those characters. Because they've clearly developed a close affinity in that past timeline. You know, he's really 
become integrated into that community so either he makes a conscious decision to like move on and like forge a different path or he's forced you know to be separate from them by them not being around anymore so Mm. yeah i think uh, unfortunately i feel like if it does go that way unless they're really careful and do something quite subversive it is then in danger of falling into some unfortunate tropes yeah no exactly i guess we have to see yeah it's it's like obviously you can't get away from it to an extent they are always going to be there to serve boba's story because it's called the book of boba fett so it's ultimately going to be about him and how he develops but yeah you can take that too far i think so we we will see um Hmm. i guess in terms of things i'm hoping to see we've obviously had footage in the trailers and tv spots of an actress called sophie thatcher who plays some sort of like edgy biker girl i guess is the best (laughs) description for her i really want that character to come in soon because you know i want like a i don't know some someone to like inject a bit more oomph into those like present day scenes you know i feel like there's lots of like paying homage and like diplomacy and stuff and you need something that's a bit more of a wild card you know to be introduced into that setting and i'm hoping that character could fit that bill yeah, I guess I haven't really given her much thought. I know a lot of people were excited to see her in that TV spot. Yeah. I'm always hesitant to, just in case they're not really much of anything. Sure. You know? No, no, which is very reasonable. I think this sort of thing is what always frustrates me of these Disney Plus Star shows, because there's literally no information out there ahead of time. So I feel like the films, you get so much more to work with in terms of like mm. having context for who characters are and what role they'll play in the story. Um yeah, I felt like I knew so much more about Rose going into The Last Jedi, you know, than I do about any of the characters in this show. And yeah, that's true. I do find it a bit ludicrous to an extent because it's like, guys, it's a TV show. Obviously, you do want to keep surprises, but, you know, you also want to get people excited and people can't get excited when they have literally no idea what's going to happen, you know? So, yeah, I feel like they could be a bit more open about upcoming stories, but whatever, they make their choices. <laughs> Maybe they thought that the fact that it's Boba Fett was enough of a sell, like that's such a recognisable name and character design. Yeah. They thought it would be enough. No, I think you're probably right with that. Yeah. Um, and in terms of things we don't want to see, I know you saw a particularly frightening rumour about an old actor potentially coming back. <laughs> so we'll acknowledge this. I, I don't take this seriously. I really, really don't think this is from a legitimate source. So that's why we're raising it. You know, if it, we thought it was an actual spoiler, we wouldn't bring it up, but... I really hope this is wrong, so tell them what I'm talking about, Kirsty. Um, there was a rumour, I think, from The Sun that Harrison Ford has filmed a scene for The Book of Boba Fett. No. I guess the possibility is they got it mixed up with Indiana Jones. Yeah. And I really hope it's for Indiana Jones, because that's fine. We know he's coming back for that. No no harm, no foul. Um, I will just say that I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, I... I definitely not ruling it out completely. Um, There's a precedent, obviously, with Mando season two. Yeah, so exactly. It's not beyond the realm of possibility, but obviously, I'm in the same boat as you. I kind of hope they don't go there. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't see what the big deal is with Han and Boba. I think it's an EU nod, which obviously we're not privy to. We weren't fans of that, but I think there was like this ongoing rivalry between the two characters along the EU books and comics. Yeah, I do think there's a hell of a lot going on with them. I know they've recently had like 
a bounty hunter arc, I think, where there's like lots of to and in throwing over who has possession of like Han's body when it's frozen in carbonite. You know, some <laughs> stupid co- comic story. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sure the comics are really good for what they are, but it just becomes a little bit ridiculous sometimes, okay? Um and yeah, I guess that develops it a bit more, but it's gonna be very one sided, you know, it's gonna be Boba Fett talking to Ham and he's bloody frozen in carbonite. <laughs> so you know, Han doesn't really have any investment in that relationship with Boba. He's gonna be a bit like, sorry, who are you who are again? You? <laughs> yeah, I just don't see what the point would be. It's like whatever. Yeah, it's not even like Boba captured him. He was just instructed to <laughs> Like he was there with Vader. Yeah, and, and the you thing is, I mean? there was nothing personal in it whatsoever. Yeah. You know, in the context of the films, like Boba Fett had a bounty. He was offered a lot of money to capture this guy. He captured him, took him to Jabba, got paid. Happy, happy. You know, it should be over then. Um, and like, I'm trying to remember, did Han have anything to do with him ending up in the Sarlacc? No. Yeah, it's like, I know there was some sort of, like, ruckus, wasn't there, like, on the barge Yeah, there's, like, shit. Luke doing all his funny kicks and stuff, and I think it's just some random guy who, like... Yeah, isn't it? Boba he, like, accidentally fall falls, basically. It's not even particularly yeah. glorious. <laughs> it's not, because he wasn't a big deal. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll, I'll, yeah, it's just so dumb. I love it, kind of, but also hate him. Um, okay, but, yeah. I'm trying to think of a different note to end it on, so I don't want to end it by just being like, oh, that's so dumb. Um, but yeah, I think it's safe to say we've both enjoyed the show so far. You know, it's fun. We're having a good time. I think we're both very much wait and see for how it evolves, because I currently have no idea what like the end game of this show might be, you know, what it might be building towards. And that's quite nice, you know, like it's going to be a surprise, presumably, whatever happens. But yeah, it makes it hard to predict, but I guess it's part of the fun and it's going to be a journey of discovery for both of us. Yeah, it's quite refreshing to have something low stakes just to watch every week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we'll obviously be continuing to chronicle the show. Since we are a fortnightly show at this point, we'll be like talking about it in batches of two episodes. So this will be the last episode for a fortnight and then you'll get one with our thoughts on episodes three and four, or at least that's the plan. So we'll see. It's excluding any like life emergencies that might mean we need to delay for whatever reason, but hopefully we can keep to that fortnightly schedule. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's great. I think that's everything for me. Do you have any final thoughts, Kirsty? I don't think so. Okay, perfect. Cool. Well, then we can do the closing. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye.